back again for another week of Securiosity. But first, DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, is the nation's largest cybersecurity festival. This citywide festival drives thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to Washington, D.C. for one week to exchange best practices, collaborate, and find ways to achieve common goals. Community events are at the heart and soul of D.C. Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet the top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. For more information, check out dccyberweek.com. Okay, let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for June 21st. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. It's another week full of ransomware news, but we've moved on from Baltimore. We'll give you the latest. In our interview, we talk with David D'Amato, Chief Security Officer of TAM. We talked to David on the sidelines of Gartner Summit in Maryland this week and spoke about patching, cyber hygiene, and what it's like to be in charge of cybersecurity inside a cybersecurity company. And the money train keeps chugging along. It was another week full of millions in private funding. We'll break it all down along with the rest of the news. So let's get to it. News broke Wednesday evening that the City Council of Riviera Beach, Florida, voted unanimously to do what we and many others have said not to pay a ransom to hackers that had locked down their IT systems. The city has paid a whopping $592,000 to the hackers behind a ransomware attack. Knowing full well that the payment may not even recuperate the data that has been lost. The payment, 65 Bitcoin, is on top of another nearly $1 million the city is spending to redo its entire IT system. The majority of the money is coming from the city's insurance package, according to the Palm Beach Post. The insurance company who was party, who recommended paying the hackers. Greg, is this the largest payment on record for a ransomware attack? Uh, there haven't been a lot of records out there that say otherwise. I think there was a payment in Mississippi earlier this year or maybe sometime last year that hit around $490,000. But normally with these attacks, if we think about Baltimore, I think the Baltimore hackers were asking for about $70,000 um, in Bitcoin, which obviously is not what this city in Florida paid. So yeah, this is a pretty staggering amount of money. And I know that this is on top of, I think the city council also elected to spend uh, a million on a new IT system overall. So it, it, it really does not send a great message to the greater internet or cities in general, because it just shows that if hackers ask for enough money and do enough damage and take things hostage, there's a good chance that they're going to get a huge payday. That's not the message that um, you know uh, private uh, cybersecurity experts and the federal government want to send. Yeah, I mean, really, really interesting, and and I wonder why um, sixty five Bitcoin versus fifty or versus a hundred or versus more. Um, and, and I don't know. I kind of feel like by paying it, you are opening your doors up and saying look at me, look at me, I'm willing to, to spend money when you hack me, so hack me again. Right. And yes, that that's the, the poor, poor message being sent here because, look, if you talk about, you know, Atlanta, if you talk about anything that is on like the major metropolitan level in the US, you're probably not going to get your your money. But if you attack a smaller city, I mean, Riviera Beach, the, the, I'm sure it's a 
sleepy retirement town where you know it, it, it's this isn't something that they're really concerned about. How many other sleepy little towns are there in Florida, Arizona, California, Texas, somewhere along the Gulf Coast? It doesn't even have to be a vacation community. Just how many small towns are going to go? We don't have the time, inclination, talent, patience to deal with this. So we're just going to pay this and and hope for the best. That's that's not a great message. That's basically saying, yeah, if you take us hostage, we'll probably pay. What what? I, I, the logic behind that is stupefying to me. Oh, for sure. I mean, I imagine we're going to see more sleepy downs um, pay out ransomwares. Not great. This It's really, really not great. So the company that collects medical bills under the name American Medical Collection Agency filed for bankruptcy protection in the Southern District of New York, listing its assets and liabilities at $10 million. Now, why you should care is the filing comes after the company learned of a data breach affecting information about millions of patients at lab testing firms Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp. After the breach, AMCA's four largest clients just flat out cut ties. And in its filing, the company describes paying $3.8 million to inform the more than 7 million people about the incident, a cost that required the company to take an additional $2.5 million loan from its chief executive. Jen, this is a prime example of how a breach makes a company just go bust. It is. And it's, um, you know, a, a little bit surprising, right? I think we see a lot of these. Um, breaches happen in bigger companies and, you know, the company does fine. Sometimes the share price um, even goes up. And and so it probably goes to show that these smaller companies, you know, don't want to announce breaches because it can hold their company. Got to figure out a way to solve that problem too, because we can't have um, breaches not being reported because their company is going to go bankrupt. Right. There are so many small and medium businesses that we know lack uh, the the talent and budget to protect themselves in a way that the large enterprises do. And this is really the risk that we want. We talk about risk management all the time. And that can be a you know dry, dense topic, but on a very simplistic level for these small and medium businesses, the risk management is protect yourself or go out of business. Like that, that's a very quick way to digest what's possible here. And this is a great example of how that can happen in a just months. I mean, this was a, a very quick story that came across our purview over the past three weeks. And all of a sudden, the company's just done. So protect yourself or get hacked. And that's that. Your company's just gone. Right. Well, and the good thing is that we're seeing more and more cybersecurity companies pop up catering to the small and medium-sized businesses. We've had at least um, Dark Cube on our show um, talking about what they offer. Um, I, I can't remember if we've had at others, but certainly, you know, there's, there's got to be a few dozen now um, that offer that service at an affordable price for um, small and medium-sized businesses. And, and as we can see by this, that's um, important for a lot of reasons. One, protecting consumer data, but two... Um, protecting a company from going bankrupt. Just because a technology company published a security update doesn't mean the flaw it's trying to fix isn't completely resolved. A security patch release is often the beginning of what could be a months-long process for companies of all sizes that need to weigh better security with possible unintended consequences, like knocking different areas of their business offline or interrupting client connections. Jeff Stone spoke with a handful of companies about how they implement security updates and what happens when they don't. Greg, are there any good practices that are detailed in this story? 
So there are. I mean, obviously, you have to have a plan. It's not so simple as to just go, oh, it's Patch Tuesday. By Wednesday, everything is going to be fixed. Uh, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise, though, that depending on the size of the company and the size of the network and all the little things that make every company its own unique IT snowflake, that patch implementation plans vary, you know, the size, corporate structure, amount of money in the budget, it all factors into this. So companies don't always patch and really weigh deciding whether a vulnerability is worth the potential disruption to operations if they have to take some computers or servers offline to patch stuff. We talked to companies like LinkedIn, which obviously everybody's familiar with, but we talked to some publishing companies, some like car part companies, and they all do different stuff. Um, And it was really interesting especially around uh, one company called ProQuest, which is the publishing company that they only have a six-person security team. And recently they had to accelerate a protocol around BlueKeep, which is this really bad Microsoft RDP bug that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. Um, normally, you know, they go through processes where they, you know, test the patching and figure out whether if anything's going to break. But with how bad this blue keep bug is, they had to skip their entire testing process and hope for the best, which means that they were updating firewalls on the fly, blocking suspicious traffic patterns on the fly, um, you know, even though that that may break some stuff. So it, it's, it is really, really hard. And we look at it through the context of what's going on in Baltimore, because the big thing around Baltimore was, okay, if you patched for Eternal Blue, there might not have been this problem and you not you, you would have seen very, very less in terms of the noise and the services taken offline. So um, it's, it's a very, very in-depth process and it, it can't just be oh, we're just going to throw everything to the wind because you could take a company offline, which is what you want to avoid to do internally and externally if there are any threats out there as well. So it's a nuanced process. I suggest checking out the story. It's a very, very good read to show that, hey, uh, patching isn't just as easy as downloading and putting it on a server. So last week, Black Hat, the Las Vegas Security Conference, said it had rescinded a keynote invitation for this year's conference to Texas Republican Will Hurd after some in the cybersecurity community raised concern about the congressman's vote to implement anti-abortion measures. Several prominent security researchers said the invitation of Hurd, one of the more knowledgeable lawmakers on cybersecurity, was an affront to women working in the industry at a time when Black Hat and other conferences have sought to be more inclusive. Other experts said disinviting Heard was a mistake and could risk alienating Congress on what should be a bipartisan issue. So, Jen, where do you fall on this? Well, last time I checked, I was female, pro-life, um, and work in the cybersecurity industry. So I'm, I'm at a loss how the two um, connect. Um, I, I'm, a fan, I'm a fan of Will Heard. Um certainly um, for his cybersecurity practice, I'm, I'm really at a loss for this. I think um, that's part of politics that should probably stay out of um, of events. Um, you know, this really isn't a time for someone to take, for a conference to take a political stance. Yeah, I think what happened here is, 
I, I think it. You could talk about the politics. We can talk about the politics surrounding this, you know, as we go on. But the primary point that I want to make here is I really think Black Hat overreacted. I, I, I really think I think it was a complete overreaction to pull the speaking uh, arrangement. They could have had him, you know, instead of just giving a keynote, have it be a fireside chat or have him speak at some smaller event. Don't have him headline it if, you know, there was going to be this backlash. I, I, I think that first off, it was a complete overreaction on Black Hat's part to just totally nuke this after one story. That that being said, I I, I don't I, I, I do think that politicizing the cybersecurity aspect of this I, I think it's just the wrong way to go. I mean, we we said it in the lead into this that cybersecurity should be a bipartisan issue. So now by doing this, we've just politicized cybersecurity and on a piece of policy that has nothing to do with cybersecurity. Like uh, I'll be honest with you, Jen, I I am on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to. Uh, you know, women's rights and, and, and abortion rights there. Uh, I, in women's rights and abortion rights, I, I, I think that that's just abortion rights or advocacy or whatever is just one spoke of the wheel when it comes to women's rights. But with that being said, I, I, I look at it this way because I've been thinking about this and, uh, you know, I'm not a woman, so I don't know, or I, I think it's dumb for me to kind of speak on how my feelings are in that regard whatsoever. I'm not a woman. I'm, I'll never have to deal with that problem. So I, I kind of refrain from speaking about it. However, I, didn't, I, I had this thought and I think this sort of puts it into perspective is if a presidential candidate who's a female, pick any of them that are out there, wanted to speak at a Planned Parenthood conference, if there is such a thing, if they wanted to keynote that, if there were some people that reached out and said Planned Parenthood should probably pull that speaking keynote because that presidential candidate doesn't have good cybersecurity practices, how would that be received in the general population? People would laugh. That that would be ridiculous. Yeah. That would be people utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that that is what we are dealing with here on the black hat side of things. I, I, I just don't think that Will Hurd's voting record on this particular policy avenue, which again, I don't agree with, to pull his speaking keynote at a cybersecurity conference because of that, I, I, I just think that that is ridiculous. Like there, there are other policy avenues here that are being talked about. And if you take issue with that, then there are avenues to deal with that elsewhere. I just, I just don't think that it needed to be politicized at all. I, I, I think that we're conflating things and I think that it's just not a great look on a number of avenues. It just, it's, it's sort of opening a can of worms. I mean, it just isn't exactly fair um, in sort of the response that they had, but, you know, I'm sort of just shaking my head at the whole thing. I didn't read um, the bill that he voted on. So I really 
don't feel comfortable saying I'm, I'm for it or against it. Um, and I'm guessing Black Hat also didn't read the bill that he voted on to know whether or not they're for or against it. So Black Hat didn't think it was going to matter. Black Hat didn't the, – the, the, the people that are, are in charge of planning the keynotes, I bet, didn't even think this was going to be an issue and were absolutely broadsided when it became an issue. But it, look, we live in weird times in this country right now, but the hyper frenzy to politicize everything is just it, – it's too much. Like it, it's exhausting. Like I, I don't – understand why it needs to touch everything. Yes, you should be engaged with everything that is going on in this country right now, but the conflation of these two policy areas, it, it, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. They, they shouldn't matter together. They just shouldn't. I, 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 I don't get it. I'm, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm way more offended um, about RSA's keynote last year, or I think a keynote, Monica Lewinsky, um, because I don't see um, the correlation between um, security and, and, and that celebrity, for lack of a better word, um, in, in where I do see um, Will Hurd's value in cybersecurity. Yeah. The quick hook on this after just the hint of controversy, I don't think does anybody any good. Like, Take a minute, take a deep breath, have a, a, a rational conversation, have some rational thoughts and uh, just, you know, decide what you can do moving forward. There, there didn't need to be this sort of like whiplash reaction about it. So, Well, I have to say, this is not a subject that I thought we would ever talk about on this um, podcast. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's just uh, hopefully that will be the last block that we ever actually discuss these two things coming together. So moving forward. <laughs> so it's been a month since Microsoft discovered the blue key vulnerability in old Windows operating systems. Now the Department of Homeland Security is adding its voice to a course of government and corporate cybersecurity professionals urging users to patch their system. DHS said Monday it has successfully tested a blue keep exploit on a machine running Windows 2000 and reiterated that, like WannaCry, malware exploiting blue keep could spread to other systems. As of last week, nearly 1 million internet-facing machines were still vulnerable to blue keep, according to researchers. Greg, is there anyone who hasn't sounded the alarm on this? Uh, no, <laughs> I think that everybody on the public and private sector side has, uh, you know, gotten out in front of this bug and said, you need to fix this bug right now. Uh, like we were just saying, this was a big part of the patching story that we were talking about a few stories ago. Um, this blue keep thing is pretty bad. Uh, not even pretty bad. It, it, it's probably, I would say among the top five bugs that, we've talked about so far this year. It, it, if you have systems that are affected by this bug, listen to DHS, listen to the federal government, listen to the, I, I think the certs, NSA, I think anybody that has any sort of clout cybersecurity wise from the federal government has said, this is bad, go patch this, do it now. Um, and people have listened, but yet we still see 1 million internet facing machines still vulnerable to blue keep. Not great. Go out there. Patch, patch these systems. Amazing. 
So the National Institute of Standards and Technology is being urged to offer more guidance on new ways of verifying the identities of government verify identities by asking personal questions from credit files, but the 2017 Equifax data breach has officials rethinking that process. My Social Security, which is the online portal by which you can check your Social Security benefits, uses knowledge-based verification before people can access their benefit status, replace Social Security or Medicare cards, or request other services. But data stolen in the Equifax breach could be used to answer the portal's personal questions. Jen, what other ways do you believe people could be identified? I mean, this is a tough one, right? I mean, if you can get all of my financial history, including everywhere I've lived through that breach, um, there's not a lot of piece of information about me um, that my social security would know that Equifax didn't know. Right. It's, this is the prime example of why knowledge-based authentication is not great. I mean, maybe they just asked me what my favorite color is and who the first guy I kissed was. And then I can, um, you know, give them those answers. Then so I can hack those and, and, and be able to get in. Right. And this is the type of stuff where you see the two-factor authentication needs to, you know, get to beyond just an enterprise groundswell level. Um, whether it's in the form of a YubiKey or a single sign-on or, you know, a, a Google authenticator. Or this just shows the need for society overall to pay more attention to two-factor authentication. Because, look, all that knowledge based authentication stuff. All you have to do is mine it off somebody's Facebook profile. If it's not on a Facebook profile, it might be in tweets. If it's not there, it's on a LinkedIn profile. So it doesn't even necessarily take a huge breach at Equifax for that information to get out there. It's probably on the internet already and it can be scraped and used to steal the benefits from you. So uh, it just shows, again, two-factor authentication really, really needs to get into the mainstream more for reasons just like this. Right. So, okay, keeping in line with our like past four episodes, there was just a ton of money flying around the last two weeks. So let's start small and work our way up. First off, uh, Defendify. Uh, based in Portland, Maine, raised $1.6 million in seed funding. The company is an all-in-one SaaS-delivered cybersecurity platform that's designed specifically for small businesses. Uh, they got their seed funding from the Maine Tech Institute and 3.6 Ventures. Then Valtix, $14 million in Series A funding from Trinity Ventures, Vertech Ventures, and Wing Venture Capital. They offer a range of services based in the cloud, cloud controller, and cloud firewall that will soon run and enforce app-level policies in AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud Platform. Local company, uh, local to us in Virginia, Expel announced it has raised $40 million in a Series C round, led by Index Ventures, with participation from Graycroft, Battery Ventures, NEA, Paladin, and Scale Venture Partners. Anti-phishing startup Valley Mail raised $45 million in a Series C round from Insight Partners. They really concentrate on automated cloud-based platform uh, email they do a lot with DMARC as well. I know they've done a lot with DMARC inside the federal government. Cybersecurity risk monitoring platform Security Scorecard raised $50 million in a Series D round. Funding was led by Riverwood Capital, Intel Capital, Evolution, Two Sigma, Axe Ventures, and Accomplish all joined in as well. Druva, a SaaS startup focused on cloud data protection and management, raised $130 million. 
They are looking like they are a unicorn, as a matter of fact. Riverwood, Tanaya, Nexus Venture Partners all kicked in some money. Uh, their CEO said now their value is just north of $1 billion. And the other unicorn that hit the market, no before, uh, provider of the world's largest security awareness training platform, received $300 million in investing from KKR. And then some other money came in from Elephant and 1011 Ventures. And then publicly, last week, CrowdStrike's IPO, they IPO'd, I think, somewhere around like $34, $35. And instantly, it like doubled. Uh, by Tuesday, it went to about seventy-six. Fifty, uh, they're just uh, a wash in cash. So uh, amazing amounts of money flying around. That's pretty big. Yeah, it was really interesting to me. We were talking about it earlier. The small and medium business uh, companies that need to get into this space to protect themselves. And hey, they're starting to get more and more offerings. So really interesting product from Defendify and the fact that they are focusing on the small and medium business segment. I think that's really really cool. Yeah. So, okay, now to our interview with uh, David D'Amato. Really interesting interview. Uh, David is the chief security officer at Tanium, talks to us about a bunch of different stuff. And David also used to work for FireEye, so he has a really interesting background in IR. I know that he was the lead on the Anthem hack that was one of the bigger hacks of the past five years. But he's with Tanium now and talking to us about cyber hygiene and what's it like to run cybersecurity inside a cybersecurity company. Check it out. Okay, joining us now from the Gardner Information Security Summit is David D'Amato, the Chief Security Officer of Tanium. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's get uh, right into it. There's been lots of talk over the past month, particularly around uh, the incident in Baltimore about patching inside organizations. And patching is one of those things where it's such a fundamental part of basic cyber hygiene, yet we keep seeing it's not as easy as pressing a button or shipping a few lines of code. Uh, What are some of the things you're seeing from your customers that are keeping organizations on a more effective patching plan? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a couple of things. When you look at Baltimore, it's it's a defense in-depth strategy maybe gone wrong a little bit. So you have patching, you have configuration management, you have a lot of different components that could have come together to help uh, prevent an incident like that. So from a patching perspective, what I see is more and more companies are looking to bring down the mean time it takes to patch their organization. And the way they're doing that is simply by being more resilient as an organization. So they're looking at uh, installing applications and SaaS solutions that can handle a more rapid patching cycle. And they're looking at solutions that can quickly identify systems that aren't patched and then apply those patches you know, in a, in a very timely manner. So you look at a lot of the legacy solutions that have been out there that struggle with Uh, understanding what patches are deployed and deploying those. And I think organizations are now turning to companies like ourselves to to figure out how do we do this in a more rapid approach. So what are some other basic hygiene things that organizations should be paying attention to? Oh, there's so many. So so my background, I spent um, about five and a half years doing incident response. And during that time, I I did about 150 breaches or so, somewhere around that. And in each of those, it was always an advanced attack, right? You hear about that in news all the time. There's an advanced attacker. And it may be true from a threat perspective. It could be a Chinese nation state or a Russian nation state. But the type of tradecraft they typically leveraged was pretty rudimentary. It was uh, exploiting a vulnerability that was known for a very long period of time. It was 
um, taking advantage of a misconfiguration, weak passwords, uh, poorly configured web servers, poorly configured management protocols. Um, it, it was something as simple as you know SMVV1 when we look back to <laughs> the issue with WannaCry uh, where we had a protocol that's about 20 years old just enabled across a fleet of computers in nearly every organization around the world. Uh, and those are just things that you know as, as organizations we need to start looking at um, configuration management, understanding the configurations of our systems, keeping them in that state, understanding the drift and reverting them back to where they should be. Um, and really understanding just our, our, our patch cycle and how well we're doing and how we're, what we're missing and, and fine-tuning that process. So for me, it's, it's really going down the stack and looking at what is the process that we use for, for managing uh, all these security-related items, because that's typically where you see problems, and then selecting the right tools to, to actually manage them. So with your experience and looking back over all the incident response work mm -hmm. that you've done, are there any examples of how a company has really done something novel to change the way they approach this basic hygiene thing, whether it is a change in configuration management, a change in their patching structure? Like, do you have any examples off the top of your head? Yeah, you know, and, and one of the reasons why I joined Tanium was actually on the back of an incident. One of my customers at the time had bought Tanium, and so I got the chance to see what it was. And it's funny, like, you talk to most vendors and they'll talk about machine learning and AI and really fancy things. And, and really what, what interests me most about Tanium was uh, the fact it's a very fast communications platform. So really for, for someone like myself or a defender, it allows you to instrument your environment really well. We're not promising some technology that's going to stop all threats and prevent zero days, right? But what we're promising is the ability to understand very quickly how is 100, 200, 300,000 know, systems, how are they configured? And then how do I revert them to the right configuration? And that's pretty powerful because if you look at when I did incident response, something like uh, a remediation action where you would uh, go in and look for administrative users across your enterprise, something like that with legacy solutions could take you know, two to three weeks if you're talking about a 100,000 network uh, node environment, right? So uh, that ability to then flip that and say in about a minute, I can get that information back you know, that's pretty powerful. And you can use that to now instrument your organization um, to defend against all the different you know, threats that are coming at you. And, and today, we're in an even more dynamic environment. We're spinning systems up and down, so that timeliness is even more important than it was four years ago. So how much does improving cyber hygiene play into the workforce? We know there's a need to get more people into the industry. Is that something that could lead to better hygiene across the board, not so much relying on the tools and the process, but actually getting more people inside organizations that, that know the technology and know the process and, and can communicate what needs to be done? Yeah, I think that's huge. We're still in the early stages of you know, information security or cybersecurity, whatever you want to call it. Um, and as a result, there's very few people who understand it and work on it and focus on it. And I think one of the key challenges I have as a CISO that's, that's also focused on internal security is culture, right? So building the right culture. I'm very lucky that I work for a company where most of the people there are very security-minded, even the engineers. You know, we are a security company now, at least you know, 50% is security, 50% is IT, and, and really those two together are fairly focused on, on, on the aspects of security. So I think a lot of time should be spent on culture. Um, it should be spent on educating users um, that their actions have an adverse, could have an adverse impact on the organization and that they have to constantly be thinking about security and everything that they do. So my engineering team needs to be thinking about it when they're designing a product when they're coding, when they're going and creating test cases, 
my um, my technical account managers, right? They need to be focused on how do we protect customer information? How do we maintain that information correctly? My HR department needs to be focused on how they're protecting information they're sending the candidates. So it's just embedded throughout the entire organization. And so I think you see a lot of CISOs now embedding uh, individuals from their organization into business organizations like partner organizations like HR and others to help them with that. And I think that's going to be incredibly important. But my hope is over the next 10 years is more and more people understand technology better and understand security better. This problem should start to improve uh, along with all the education that you know, a lot of us are, are trying to provide. What are the steps you take to sort of embed that culture into your organization? Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of people doing some really interesting work in this. I'm, I'm Probably, uh, I wouldn't say I'm the best at it, uh, but we do a lot of work around it. And so a lot of it has to do with um, getting people engaged. And the way in which we do that is we have a, a couple things. So one, we have sort of a Friends of Security program where we have some pretty cool stickers and other swag that we'll give out and sort of makes you a special person. People ask, oh, where did you get that from? Oh, the security team, why? Because I did such and such. So giving away swag like that is really interesting. Getting people engaged with think better education than what we provided in the past. I know we've all attended, not a habit, right? When you're onboarded, you have sort of the boring information security training that you take online and, you know, it's necessary to an extent, um, but there's stuff beyond that. So training that's applicable to each organization's role, right? And under helping them understand how it plays into them doing their job better. So, you know, I work extensively with the engineering team to drive down the number of vulnerabilities that we have within our products and they get it. So they can see over time, um, what they're doing, how it's actually reducing vulnerabilities and allowing them to create better quality code faster. Uh, it's actually improving their jobs, right? So I, I think it's that type of engagement that really helps to embed the security-related culture in the business. It's, it's linking that, how does security improve the business? How does security improve your role and your lifestyle in your role? I think is an incredibly important um, connection to make. So you hit upon my next question a little bit there. In your role as Chief Security Officer at Tandem, you're responsible for internal security too. And what's it like doing cybersecurity inside a cybersecurity company? I would imagine that it's easier to get buy-in on some stuff, but people still want the convenience of doing what they need to do to get their job done when they want to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably terrifying uh, in my role, right? Because <laughs> if we ever have an incident, it's really the end of the company, right? Or it's, it's, it's pretty serious. And so, um, you know, I think from my perspective, um, one of the things I, I enjoy about it is because I get to learn so much about how I, how I secure my own environment um, that I get to apply that to customers. So we have a really unique program where we work with customers to show them how we're using our tools and other tools in the industry, right? So you think about partners like Splunk and Palo Alto and others. It's really great to show them that I'm not just pushing a single product, but we have a product that integrates with a, a full solution. And I think that's been a really powerful message uh, to provide to, to different to different people. So in prior stocks in your career, you've been responsible for overseeing incidents, uh, response projects like Anthem. Um, and we've talked a, a lot about um, what happened in Baltimore on the show. Um, so what's your opinion on how difficult it is to apply attribution to it? What happened? Uh, to Anthem? Well, in the Baltimore. To, any, to, yeah. Baltimore. to, to really just yeah. anything in, in general. Yeah. I mean, being on top of 150 breaches like you did, you know how difficult it is to actually attribute something. Or maybe it's not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there's just been this talk within, for, for months, that attribution, there's some people that say attribution is easier, some people that say that attribution is never a, a solid thing. I'm 
love to hear your thoughts on that. I think attribution is kind of an art form and it's based on how much data you have collected about particular threats. And each organization really differs in how they do attribution. Some are, I think, a little bit more rigorous and some are less. And, and so I think it's really important to understand who you're listening to in this space. Um, so some are using very advanced techniques that they've learned from various government agencies. They're applying a lot of rigor to this. Uh, they're looking at past information they've gathered from other investigations and creating you know, threat groups. And over time, they can put a, a face or a number or a character to, to that uh, threat group. Um, I think it is irrelevant for the commercial or, you know, industry as a whole, So that, which is kind of unique. I don't think many people feel the same way. I think it's a distraction. In a lot of the incidents I did, uh, I found that executives tended to focus on who did it as opposed to how it happened and how we correct it. And I spent a lot of time redirecting the conversation from, you know, I want to know which you know, Chinese threat actor this was and I want to understand where they are to, okay, let's understand how this happened, how it can happen again, how it's not specific to this threat group. And so I, I think it's a huge distraction and it's, it's interesting because it's a great, I think it's a great news story, right? People want to hear about, you know, the New York Times being hacked by the Chinese or Google being hacked by the Chinese and I, and I get that. Um, but I think we often focus a little bit too much on the who and in reality it doesn't really matter from a commercial perspective. It matters from a, a government perspective. You know, the NSA and the CIA are very sure. interested in those types of things and um, I, I think it matters very much to them and I think they have a great methodology for doing that. And I think what the Department of Justice has done, the shame other countries that are doing this is really important and it's a great mechanism that's really working. Um, but from a commercial perspective, I put a lot less weight on it um, and I think it's a distraction for most people. So speaking about the distraction when it comes to executives, you know, we've seen surveys that show that inside the C-suite, there's often trouble to get buy-in on, on the, the risk and, and yeah. everything that goes into cybersecurity. How have you seen the C-suite evolve with your customers or just over your career? Is the C-suite evolving or are they still like whatever, just fix it? They are evolving. It's a very slow evolution, <laughs> unfortunately. So, so, you know, here's the weird thing, right? Like as a, if you think of it as a CISO, you're asked to be very technical, um, but also be very uh, high level and understand the business and how security relates to the business. Um, and as a CISO exec, you're asked to understand a lot of technical metrics like financials, right? So if you go to a board meeting, you'll talk in very, very much, a lot of detail about financial risks and about financial metrics. Uh, but if you talk about security, the, that same conversation is extremely high level. There's no really detailed metrics, right? It's very hard to communicate the specifics of security. And so you wind up with a very high level conversation, what I typically call narratives or stories, which are usually effective in conveying you know, what you're doing. So here's an incident that I want to talk about and how we handled it. Here's a trend in our industry that we should be aware of and as potential risk. Um, but we're not to the point yet where I think you can walk into a board and say, uh, here's our you know, risk profile based around patching and other things. They want scores, they want high-level numbers, and you know when you when you dumb something down enough, it eventually becomes dumb. And I still think our conversations with leadership are fairly rudimentary and basic, uh, and I think that does a disservice to security. But over time, as I think executives learn more about this, as we do more narratives, as our you know as CISOs better prepare board members and other executives, non-technical executives, I think this will continue to improve. And it, it definitely has over the last five years, right? Great. So, on to curiosity, we end every interview with a random question. Uh, for you, David, over the course of your life, what is something that has taken you way too long to figure out? 
Uh, well, well, your last question was actually it, so I had a strong opinion on it because I've been trying to figure it out for quite some time. So uh, if you go back, I think about five years, uh, I did some research around board metrics and I came up with this approach and, and then sort of a, a financial statement for uh, board members around cybersecurity and it included metrics around things like patching and configuration management and scores. And, and so when I first started talking to the board uh, um, and I quickly realized that's not what they wanted. And so for the next, next four years or so, I, I adapted my message to board and non-technical leadership. And I think one of the things that I've learned over the last you know, five years that took me way too long to learn was how to communicate with executives and how to communicate with those people who aren't uh, technical in their terms, in business terms, so that they understand the importance of cybersecurity. And I think it's a huge challenge for most CISOs. You know, most of us started with a technical background. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to start in consulting, so at least I had experience dealing with executives. But I think uh, understanding how to take your message and effectively craft it to show the value that you bring and also communicate risks to senior leadership is something that's been extremely difficult for me. And it's uh, something that I can apply in other areas as well, like talking to other people about different topics that they may not understand. Uh, it's been valuable throughout my, the rest of my life as well. Great. David, really appreciate you hopping on board with us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks again to David for joining us. And we did a bunch of interviews at Gartner over the past week, and we're going to be rolling them out to you over the next couple of weeks. Some really interesting conversations with some bigger and smaller companies alike. Can't wait for you to hear them. Take care, everyone. Bye. Stay curious. <laughs>